Al-Assad tells US TV his stock of chemical weapons can be destroyed. Could drawdown from Germany lead to a shortage of school places in Wiltshire? We're looking at where we think the families will live and negotiating with the head teachers and the governors about where we go with those schools. And a recently declassified file reveals why Tunnock's tea cakes were banned by the RAF. The Syrian president has publicly agreed to destroy his stock of chemical weapons less than two weeks after denying he had any. President Bashar al-Assad has appeared on Fox News in America to stress he will agree to international demands, but that it will be a long, slow and expensive process. Well, I'm joined for today's sit-rep by Professor Michael Clark, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies. Hello, uh, Michael. Um, yes, hello. President Assad has suggested America can help with the cost of destroying the weapons, which he puts at about a billion dollars. Will America pay for it? Uh, they might find that they will eventually, but they won't uh, initially, I'm sure, because it, it seems so opportunistic um, on the Syrian president's part. But, uh, I mean, the cost of destroying what looked like about, seems to be about a thousand tonnes of uh, chemical weapons is in the region of about a billion dollars. If you look at what the Americans and others put into destroying the Iraqi program, uh, chemical program, which was about half or m maybe two-thirds of that at the very most, it was in that order. So, he's, he, I mean, the president is not wrong when he said it would cost a billion dollars and it would take about a year. Technically, that's more or less true. But I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's a way of cocking a snook at America to say, well, fine, OK, destroy my weapons, but this is the cost and this is the time it will take. Indeed. And on that gas attack, the sarin gas attack in Damascus last month, President Assad still denying being responsible, saying a well-backed rebel group was or could be. Russia's saying there's evidence that rebels carried out, and yet the UN inspectors putting the blame firmly on Assad's forces. Why won't Russia accept that? They, they find it difficult because they've always maintained that uh, that Assad is not the worst actor in this whole uh, awful civil war. And uh, I, I think it would just undermine their position so much if they said, OK, well, we've now seen the UN weapons inspectors report and we accept it was the Syrian government. I have to say, I don't know anybody, a uh, serious analyst, who believes it was anyone other than the Syrian government. We thought that from the very beginning. My own institute, we did some independent work on it, just working on the pictures that we got hold of. Uh, and, I mean, our Russian specialist... Uh, pinpointed the factory in Russia where these things came from, from the serial numbers. They were manufactured in 19... They were, they were designed in 1972. They were supplied in the 1990s. We, do, we, we know not only that they were uh, Russian weapons, but that they, they, they came from a particular factory. Mm -hmm. Now, the only possibility is that the Syrians had Russian weapons, the Syrian army. The only other possibility is that they were stolen from the Syrian army. But there's no, not, a, not a smidgen of evidence anywhere in the last two years that that has actually happened. So just talk us through what happens next in the process of getting rid of any chemical weapons in Syria? Well, in a way, I mean, we're in not such a bad position. I mean, certainly a better position than we thought we'd be in a couple of weeks ago because although this will be expensive and although it will take time, in a way, that's not the problem. The issue is now there is a process. And uh, I, I'm certain that President Assad will say to all of his military commanders, for heaven's sake, don't use any chemical weapons. Chemical weapons are now off the table. He would be extraordinarily stupid um, if he did. 
Um, so, in a way, the fact that it may take a long time and be very expensive is not the main issue. The main issue is that there is now a process for di disarming the Syrians of chemical weapons, which the Russians are cooperating in, and they've got to deliver. And that in itself is a very interesting development, which we wouldn't have predicted even a month ago. And so, in a way, President Obama is in a, is in a much better position than we thought he would be, quite by accident. They, they've blundered into peace in this respect, that um, he's able to say, look, I threatened force, I didn't need to use it and the Syrians are being disarmed of chemical weapons and they dare not use chemical weapons again so the object has been achieved none of that however of course is going to stop the civil war going on uh, all of this is in a sense it's, it's dramatic but it's peripheral mm. to a civil war that's cost the lives of more than 100,000 people and is tearing the Middle East apart all right, Professor Michael Clark, stay with us because you'll be with us for, throughout the programme today. Uh, the most senior woman police officer in Helmand in Afghanistan died in hospital this week after being shot by gunmen. She's the third high-ranking officer to be killed recently and Lieutenant Nirgar's death comes only two months after her predecessor. So coincidence or concerted campaign? Earlier I spoke to Claire Lockhart, director of the Institute for State Effectiveness, who spent time in Afghanistan advising the UN and the Afghan government and today is testifying to U.S. politicians on the American withdrawal post-2014. I asked her how has the situation and security changed for women since she was last there? There's been significant progress for women, in fact, for all citizens since 2002. And, and while a lot of the media is very negative about the current situation, I think this shouldn't obscure this very real progress, both in the overall situation and in security. Uh, back in 2002, women were completely um, shut in their homes and excluded from almost every facet of life. Um, now, many of them are, are full participants or nearly full participants across um, politics and business and society. Um, there's a massive back-to-school campaign. Uh, they're serving as doctors, as teachers, as politicians. Um, there's a rule that they have a certain percentage of 25% of seats in Parliament, and they're serving as ministers and in, in positions across the government. So there's been really immense progress. And the growth of the Afghan National Security Forces, the army and the police, I think are making steady but sure progress towards the goal of providing protection for all citizens. Now, that's not to say that there aren't in, in very severe vulnerabilities and concerns about what comes post-14. You say it shouldn't obscure the, the progress that's been made, but do you think that these recent deaths are part of a deliberate campaign to target prominent women? Very, very sadly, it does seem to be so. Now, having said that, um, you know, men are even more at risk in, in the number of fatalities and casualties in the um, Afghan armed forces, amongst um, Afghan civilians at, at large, has been growing over the last years as they've become um, targets of terrorist attacks. So that's a deep concern. Um, and women do seem to be amongst some particularly high-profile women. There have been the two Helmandi police officers very tragically um, targeted. Um, the Indian woman, the wife of an, of an Afghan um, in, in the southeast, um, Lieutenant Colonel Karkar back in 2008. So there are a number of women, both civilians and, and police officers who have been targeted, which is of, of deep concern. Do you think that the 2014 date for combat withdrawal has anything to do with the numbers of women being targeted at the moment? And do you think that, that those numbers of women being attacked will change post-2014? It's without question that um, Afghanistan is now at a crossroads and it's quite hard to determine what's going to happen after 14. Um, I think it's um, certain to say that the date of 14 
and, and the withdrawal of combat troops and the transition to a different type of presence of the international community is causing um, a high degree of anxiety and uncertainty among the population and women in particular. Um, the key factors, and, and the UN representative in the country and many others have, have commented on this, that the key factor for the country being able to weather the transition and continue to protect its citizens and women in particular is confidence and commitment. I think what the international community can do is stick to its security commitments that were made at Lisbon and Chicago and the financial commitments that were made at Tokyo. But I think if those commitments hold, then Afghans can have the confidence and Afghanistan stands a really good chance of being able to continue to provide protections to its citizens. But there certainly are some uncertainties. That was Claire Lockhart, director of the Institute for State Effectiveness. Well, you may notice BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee has been absent from the programme so far. That's because he's been presenting a paper to defence analysts in Italy on what tactics America can expect from al-Qaeda. He joins us on the line now from Perugia. Hello, Christopher. So what can America expect from al-Qaeda in the future? Well, what al-Qaeda appears to be doing is rethinking what it recommends. Remember, al-Qaeda is not an organization that sends out people on its own plans. What it will do is sponsor terrorism. It's an umbrella group, if you like. And the feeling is this, that al-Qaeda is saying, if we start hitting America in maybe small pockets, small incidents in America, but at Americans, wherever they are, around the world, for example, embassies, um, etc. Americans will start to lose faith in their own government to do anything about it. And so the target really is the American people. They're saying to the American people, listen, how can you have any faith in your people? who are running, are running your country. And that's uh, quite a new tactic, uh, rather than the big spectacular attack. Michael Clark, um, do the Americans take notice of these kind of messages, this kind of research that comes out? Oh, yes, they hoover it all up. Um, you know, they don't know any better than the rest of us what uh, what may be coming down the road. But they certainly look across the spectrum to say, well, what what might the threat be from the sort of thing Christopher was talking about, a series of aggregate individual threats, which I have to say we used to worry about in 2001, 2002, and now seems if it's back on the radar through to uh, the idea of the lone wolf uh, terrorist and the and the big spectacular. We know that Al-Qaeda core, as far as that they are able to do anything these days, they still have aspirations to produce the big spectacular attacks. So certainly the American authorities, they they read everything. So does Al-Qaeda, incidentally. All right, Michael Clark, stay with us. But Christopher Lee in Perugia, thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, could forces families face a shortage of school places when they return to the UK from Germany? And we discover why Tunnock's tea cakes were banned by the RAF. PFBS Sit rep. It's party conference season once more. This week in Glasgow, the Liberal Democrats have confirmed they want a smaller nuclear deterrent for the UK, but only after a fierce debate about whether their policy should be total nuclear disarmament. It's one of a raft of defence policies approved by the party on Tuesday. And yesterday, as he closed the conference, Lib Dem leader Nick Clegg insisted Britain is not heading into retreat after MPs rejected any military action in Syria. Britain is always at its strongest and proudest 
when we are open to the world, generous-spirited, warm-hearted, working with our neighbours and a leader on the world stage. That's the message I will take to New York next week when I represent our country at the United Nations General Assembly. Now, there are some in the world who seek to present us as pulling up the drawbridge following Parliament's decision not to consider a military intervention in Syria. But they will hear from me that they are wrong. Well, BFBS reporter James Hurst has been at the conference. So, James, how does that message, that message from Nick Clegg, fit with the updated defence policy passed on Tuesday? Well, he talked very firmly there about Britain being a leader in the world. Now, I'll give you uh, just one sentence from this 31-page document. It talks about the UK's sense of place, sense of its place in the world needing to be scaled back to reflect more realistically the resources at its disposal. I think some people are going to see that as being a bit at contradiction with being a leader in the world. Uh, what I think you will hear from Liberal Democrats, though, is, and uh, he, it's something that Nick Clegg talked about there, and it's written right throughout this document, it's about more cooperation, sharing, alliances. That is how they think we are going to maintain our, our power and capability. And how much debate was there about the new policy? Uh, about the policy itself, almost none. About the trident element of it entirely. 90 minutes. Uh, it, when it came down to a vote, basically they, it, it was as you said, this question of the trident review position, fewer submarines, not carrying armed missiles most of the time, versus an amendment which said, go for total disarmament. In the end, the vote was 322 in favour of uh, slimmed down, 228 in favour of total disarmament. Fair divide in the party. It does, though, set them apart from Labour and Conservatives. Both of them support replacement of Trident. Uh, it's been a, an agree to differ in the current coalition. So uh, when I spoke to the former Armed Forces Minister, Nick Harvey, I asked, is this a red line if it comes to any more coalition negotiations, or could, in the future, the Lib Dems end up signing up for a like-for-like -like Trident replacement? Uh, this is something we will want to discuss in the event that there are any future coalition negotiations. We think we have articulated the language of the nuclear ladder. We are pointing the way down it and we would be inviting the other parties to uh, look at the ladder and see how far down it they might be willing to come with us. But it's not a deal breaker yet. It's not for me to uh, make deals or break deals. This is something that we will uh, deal with when we get there uh, and... Uh, we have an election to get through first and we're going to be doing our best to sell this policy to the nation, which I think they will be ready to hear and buy. Elsewhere in the paper, you talk about arranging representation like the Police Federation for the Armed Forces without the right to strike, giving reservists guaranteed leave and other things on welfare, education, hospitals. Will that lot actually make it to the manifesto, though? There will be a defence manifesto, that's what we did last time, and I would expect us to do the same again next time. And some of these are very serious issues. You know, people are concerned about the welfare of the armed forces, and certainly on things like uh, having a professional federation to re represent their interests. This is something we have been arguing for for many years, and would certainly be something that we would be willing to put into a manifesto. Really, I don't understand what the problem is here. It's common sense to my way of thinking, and there's nothing for either the armed forces hierarchy or the Ministry of Defence to fear from allowing a representative body along the lines of the Police Federation. And James, um, some Conservative backbenchers have been openly critical this week of cuts to the regular army to rebalance with a larger reserve. What do the Liberal Democrats make of that? Well, this was uh, one of the things addressed in this policy paper. It talked about optimising the potential of the reserves being clearly right in principle, but 
they also now in their stated policy have concern. They say the proposed changes have not been adequately thought through and could pose risks. Bear in mind, this is pretty critical because they're criticising the results of a decision taken when they had a minister, Nick Harvey, when he was the Armed Forces Minister in the MOD. So they're criticising what their own party's done in government. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, what do you make of what the Lib Dems have had to say on defence this week? They're trying to hold to a position which uh, distinguishes them from the government, but uh, in a way they know that principle aside, you don't win many votes on defence. Uh, the, 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 the public in general either don't want to talk about defence at an election or they want to talk about it negatively. And so it is a difficult one for them uh, because there is a real feeling in the in the party that they, they are committed to a degree of nuclear disarmament for Britain. And I'm just looking at the figures that, that we heard. I mean, it's sort of 60% of the, of the party went in favour of the slimmed-down version of Trident replacement and 40% went for none at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, for most in the uh, Conservative Party and the Labour Party, those are quite radical figures, I think. And Liberals have got to to deal with this as they get towards an election. All right. Professor Clark, stay with us. James Hurst, thank you. This is BFBS. The officer in charge of retaining soldiers in the army has admitted that it's a very challenging time for troops and their families, but Lieutenant General Andrew Gregory, Chief of Defence Personnel, said the situation will improve. He made the comments while addressing troops in Germany as part of consultations on the new employment model, a massive rehaul of terms and conditions. General Gregory told our reporter, Ali Gibson, why they were being changed. The aim is to make sure that some of the dissatisfactions that exist in our current model, particularly around frustrations over pay 2000 and frustrations over inability to own a home and for spouses and partners to have employment are addressed. So the structure is designed to ensure that uh, people can access homes, can get their wives, partners into employment and at the same time can progress a career. Now, one of the things we've spoken to the Army Families Federation about is kind of the sort of the short-term problems before this get, gets introduced. People are saying there the husbands are working long hours because there's gap jobs, but there's still an operational um, commitment at the moment. Do you think things will actually get worse before they get better, or is there kind of you know a brighter horizon in sight? It's a challenging time. There's no doubt about that. And while we're still committed to Afghanistan and while we're changing the shape of all three services through Army 2020 and initiatives in the Navy and Air Force, the drawdown in strength is going at a different pace to the changes in structures. So there are gaps. That is uh, absolutely true. And that is meaning that people are having to work very hard. Once we get to a stable structure, uh, some of that will be addressed. But I think it's true, people do work hard and service life is busy. What is critical is making sure that the proper balance is maintained. So people, as well as being asked to do training and to deploy on operations, have time for family life, have time for sport, have time for adventure training. I think we will get there. How do you sort of combat the problem of perhaps troops being dissatisfied in the short term? And how do you keep hold of those soldiers and stop them leaving before things improve, as it were? The two words I think are critical are trust and the offer. We must maintain the trust of our people across defence. Part of that is about communicating and being honest as to exactly where we are today. The offer is what attracts people into the services and keeps people in. And that is a combination of a career, opportunities to deploy on operations, to train, 
to uh, have appropriate pay, pension, allowances, accommodation. So what we're doing all the time is looking at those various elements and making sure that they meet the aspirations of our people during a time of austerity. And we cannot get away from that. So there are constraints that we're having to live up under, as are other parts of government. Part of my job is to make sure that those who express dissatisfaction with the offer, particularly by terminating their service, um, we don't have a crisis in that area. Finally, General, do you have any remaining message to troops that you'd like to sort of say to them at this time? We're very grateful for the commitment of service personnel and the continuing support we have from families. I think it has been a difficult time for service personnel. There's been a lot of uncertainty, not least with redundancy tranches, and the likelihood is that there will be one more redundancy tranche before we get to the end of that. And I'm very clear about how difficult that is for those who are in field. I think the future for the armed forces is good. I think the opportunities that exist will be challenging and rewarding for our people. I believe it's still a profession I am proud to be in, and I think others should be proud to be in it too. That was Lieutenant General Andrew Gregory, Chief of Defence Personnel, speaking to our reporter, Ali Gibson. Professor Michael Clark, um, it is a tricky balance to get right, isn't it? Retaining experience against recruiting new people in the army. Yes, and um, uh, General Gregory, I think, made that pretty clear. I mean, the army doesn't have too much of a problem with recruitment. It's still, the, as he says, the offer is is still pretty good, and the sense of trust is good because the spirit in the army is still one. It's really quite unique. I mean, whenever I see it, I am still, even after these number of years, bowled <laughs> over by the degree of trust. But the problem with the offer is that it wears off. Um, in a sense, you, know, you can recruit people, can't retain them for long enough. And so um, officers at captain level at the age of 32 are thinking, well, I'm not really going to stay until 45, uh, become a lieutenant colonel, colonel, and then go and f- find a- another career. I want to find another career now before I'm 34, 35. So do you think there's going to be a problem with experience as we go forward? I think there is, yes. And, and the, I mean, the word on the streets, as it were, the word on the soldiers' streets, is that a lot of uh, younger officers are now looking to leave and they're taking with them very good memories uh, and a great sense of spirit but they're taking with them skills and the skill fade in, in the forces is really pretty considerable we used to say that you know anyone who's left the forces for more than two years has lost most of the relevant skills for operations and that's even more true when you look at Afghanistan where the, the, the nature of the operation changed phenomenally from year to year so that you know the operation in 2002 bore almost no relation to the operations that exist today it's so much more sophisticated and technical in just about every respect. Well, there are fears that forces' families will face a lack of school places when they return to the UK from Germany. Wiltshire's expected to face huge challenges in education provision as drawdown kicks in. Thousands of families will descend on the county over the next seven years. The biggest swell in numbers is expected to be in primary age children, which will mean school expansions and new bills, which will have to be repeated when those pupils eventually reach secondary school. Nigel Roper is the head of the Stonehenge Secondary School near Larkhill Garrison. Ultimately, there is going to be a demand for at least one new secondary school to cater for the uh, additional numbers. And it may well be uh, that the existing schools, some of which are smaller than average, will either need um, substantial refurbishment or hopefully, in our case, uh, a rebuild. Nick Glass is Wiltshire Council's Head of School Strategic Support. He admits they face challenges. 
The major thing that we're doing at the moment is trying to sort out where we are in terms of the uh, the infrastructure and the schools that we are. And so we're we're looking at where we think the families will live and negotiating with the head teachers and the governors about where we go with those schools. Well, in a statement, the MOD said it has established a dedicated team to ensure that issues surrounding the provision of education for service children in the wake of the Germany drawdown and rebasing are addressed. The team, it says, are working closely with other units within the MOD who are responsible for infrastructure, housing, etc. In addition, it says the team are also working closely with Wiltshire Council to ensure they have the necessary information to allow them to plan and deliver the appropriate number of school places. Well, I'm joined now by Catherine Spencer, Chief Executive of the Army Family. Federation. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Um, some real concerns there from those responsible for Wiltshire schools. What have you heard from families in the area and in Germany, indeed? Well, I think families are certainly concerned about what provision will be available when they move back to the UK from Germany. But of course, school places are always um, of a worry to army families who are mobile. So I think it's probably not just those moving back from Germany, but it's anybody moving back into areas like the Salisbury Plain where there is a pressure on school places. I think we have to put it into perspective as well as the local, um, our civilian population are also experiencing difficulties accessing school places. But there are certainly going to be areas where it's, it's more extreme because of those new populations. Uh, some of the work that we've been doing is obviously highlighting those concerns to the chain of command and also as we're buying new properties in areas like the Salisbury Plain, expressing that we need to be giving good cons- consideration to making sure those schools are, those houses are in the locality of good schooling. But specifically with the provision of education and the drawdown from Germany, you heard the MOD statement there. Do you get the sense that enough is being done? I think enough is being done in the time frame. We have to be empathetic, I think, to the fact that this is happening much more quickly than we ever anticipated. I was direct to Germany um, back in 2010, uh, and I think Liam Fox at that time talked about withdrawing troops from Germany. We didn't think it would happen. So it is a very quick withdrawal from Germany, and having to put actions in place very quickly so i think people are working as quickly as they can we certainly get the fact that local authorities need to have those numbers of of populations that are inbound and we'll doing we'll be doing more work um to try and emphasize the need for school places to be available and for parents to feel sure that they're going to be able to get their child into a good primary or secondary school you must have spoken to mod about all of this what has the nature of your conversations been well we're involved at a variety of levels at the local level with with um, the local teams working within Wiltshire but also on a variety of um, sort of strategic board level meetings where we raise our concerns so I am confident that work is being done as quickly as I can but I, as can be but I'm also aware that there is you know an enormous amount of difficulty in estimating what specific ages of children are going to be, ava- be are going to be in which location and of course one of the complicating factors here is that we actually need to know where the houses will be as well so there will be um, you know, a considerable number of new houses across the Salisbury Plain. Until we know exactly where those houses are, it's going to be difficult to pin down into exactly which area those new schools are needed and new place, school places. And br- briefly, Michael Clark, the Army, the MOD, the authorities, they all have to get this right, don't they? Yes, they do, because uh, we're talking about 20,000 troops you know, coming back from Germany, 10,000 now and another 10,000 before 2020. So there's a lot of families there. And remember, they're not coming back to the UK as a whole. They're coming back to a limited number of places, i.e. around army bases in Wiltshire and up in Catterick and so on. So it really is a... It, I mean, the numbers don't sound that high, but in, the, in terms of local authorities, they're very high. And it's a, it's a real expensive and difficult transition which the army here is trying to carry through. 
All right, um, we'll have to leave it there. Catherine Spencer, Chief Executive of the Army Families Federation, thanks for joining us today. Uh, finally, we couldn't leave today or without our fill of the explosive story of the chocolate tea cakes banned by the RAF in the 1960s. Um, Professor Michael Clark, um, you're still with us, aren't you, for this one? Mm. <laughs> Tell us a bit more. Oh, my favourite aeroplane, the Valiant, uh, the, one of the V-bombers. When they were t- patrolling in the 60s, they would, uh, the, the crews would take chocolate tea cakes with them as part of their kit, as part of their, their snack, uh, in their snack box. And because of the differences in pressure, um, they, would, they used to cruise around at about 25, with, a, with a pressure of about 25,000 feet, which was combat conditions, even when they were at 40,000 feet. And, of course, they found uh, at 25,000 feet, these marshmallows would expand because <laughs> the marshmallow would actually break the chocolate. And because they're bored silly in, on these patrols, they used to line these things up in front of them to see which ones expanded most. Schoolboy tr- stuff, hey? Absolutely, yeah. And eventually, of course, they did an emergency uh, depressurization right, to, to, to 40,000 feet, which is almost zero pressure and the crew that did it found that all of the chocolate tea cakes in front of them just exploded all over them in their faces <laughs> over their suits when it was reported the RAF decided this was a safety hazard so they banned the use of chocolate tea cakes from any of their snack boxes thereafter and since then i don't think i've seen a single one on an aircraft michael clark on that note we must leave it thank you very much for your time today our thanks to professor michael clark from Rusi. if you'd like to join the debate we're on twitter you can tweet us at bfbs sitrep remember you can listen again to this week's program on our website bfbs.com slash sitrep we're back at the same time next week but for now from me thanks for listening and we'll speak to you again this time next week bye bye for now Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS 